there's been a long tradition of people um, entering either job interviews or entering the room and telling you a lot about what they've done in the past and, and focusing on what they've done and, uh, and trying to build confidence in the future based on what they've done in the past. Now, what, what someone has done in the past is, um, is, is certainly, it's worth mentioning what you've done in the past, whether it's specific to the role or not, it's still worth mentioning, I guess, because it brings trust to the table. But really, um, if there's one bit of advice that I could give anyone uh, is to be uh, open about what they actually want to do in the future. Hi, I'm Renata Bernardi, and this is the Job Hunting Podcast, where I interview experts and professionals and discuss issues that are important for job hunters and those who are working to advance their careers. So make sure that you subscribe and follow, and let's dive right in. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Job Hunting Podcast. Today, we're going to talk to Nick Bebel. He's an Australian engineer and academic. He's a professor and deputy dean of the College of Engineering and Computer Science at the Australian National University. He is originally from Melbourne and works in the field of material science and engineering, having made many contributions in this area of material design, material durability, and materials characterization. I'll put the link below if you're interested to understand more about this. And Nick, you know, I as a ignorant person <laughs> on material science, I see Nick as a the 3D printing guru here in Australia. He has his own Wikipedia page, and he is um, a corrosion expert. Um, and th that's really his expertise in materials engineering is well known. He was um, a colleague of mine at Monash University. He's an academic, I'm, I'm a professional staff member, and we worked together on a, a few projects where we were connecting with um, industry to propose and, and promote um, partnerships with Monash University. Nick uh, had uh, a great team working with him at the engineering faculty at Monash. And I remember it was the sort of um, place that we wanted to show everybody that came to Monash because the uh, center that he uh, ran then was so high tech, so amazing. Everybody loved working there. And one thing that I will never forget was that they had these little robots on wheels with iPads so that people in an organization overseas uh, on the other side of Australia could actually see what was happening there as they were 3D printing pieces of machinery, for example, and they could talk to the team and work together and collaborate, even, even if they were at a distance. So, of course, I'm always thinking about remote work and people working from home and uh, the sort of challenges that the pandemic has generated. And those ideas that I saw working so well in Nick's um, uh, work environment, even before the pandemic, were always in my mind. As you know, I've interviewed Sue Lim before. Now, Sue is somebody who also worked with me at Monash in developing nice workplaces where people would collaborate better, interact better, and you can follow her on LinkedIn. She just got promoted to a, a very important role here in Australia, and she's an expert in designing workplaces that work work <laughs> uh, so um and and we we discussed in the episode with uh with lim uh with sue lim the idea of working from home and what works well working from home and what works better when you're working together face to face 
Now, Nick mentioned to me, um, we exchanged a few messages recently, and he mentioned to me that he was uh, hiring, you know, great talent, and he, you know, was really keen to share that with me. And I'm like, yeah, let's share that on the podcast. Let's do an episode. I, I much rather have those conversations so I can share them with you. And that's why he came on board and we talk about um, hiring top talent, which for him is really challenging at the moment in Australia because our borders are closed. And all around the world, if you're hiring high-tech professionals, people that are at the top of their game, as you will see when, when um, I play the episode for you, it's, they're not easy to find. You need to scour the world after them. You need to really look for these uh, top individuals to come and join your team if you are at the high end of uh, the R&D um, revolution, especially when it comes from uh, materials engineering, uh, machine learning, AI, automation. It's, it's really hard and rare to find those top professionals. And he's in a top university in Australia, so he really needed um, those top professionals. We discuss how you can make that work with remote working and how in Australia we can develop great uh, talent domestically. This can be applied wherever you are in the world. I know that Nick, during our conversation, was mentioning, oh, you know, making sure that this is not just about Australia, but I think you can translate that to wherever you are in the world, this will be a challenge everywhere. It's heightened here because we are an island and our government is very strict with the border closure. closure. So it's it's more acute for um, universities and R&D organizations to attract um, professionals when they can't bring people from overseas. Um, what else do we discuss? We discuss uh, best practices for sector transition. So if you are in a corporation and you want to start working for a startup, if you are keen to maybe be the sort of hybrid professional between um, corporations and R&D and university research, it's not an easy position to have. I have to admit, I've done that. <laughs> it's really tough um, because you're dealing with extremely smart people that know exactly what they want. And in my role as a business development professional, um, I had to translate uh, some of the work that they did to language that was more understood in the marketplace. And sometimes it was a really difficult sell because you have to also educate um, the corporate sector to accept some of the technologies that are available to them and it's a great work you know it's challenging but it's so rewarding as well so we discuss how that sector transition can be done and how to present uh, yourself as an experienced professional at an interview I really like Nick's um, tip which I'm going to leave it at that I don't want to give too much away I want you to listen to what he has to say and we also discuss what's happening next in terms of industry and incorporating all these amazing technology that we have coming our way you will see that I mention it in a very sort of selfish individual way and that Nick is thinking really broad and um and macro level and I'm like oh I just want a 3G printing machine to print out my wine glasses that break <laughs> Um, and, and, you know, between the two of us, I hope that you can get a lot out of this 
um, episode, I really always want executives to think about their career progression and the years ahead as being different from the years behind us. I think more now than ever, we can see this acute difference between 2019 and 2020 and 21 in terms of um, the priorities in the corporate sector, the priorities for government, they have changed. So we need to um, adapt our skills and the tool set that we bring with us to adjust to these new world of work. Um, Another um, episode that I would recommend that you listen to after this is um, Catherine Ball's episode um, and Catherine Lopez. So that would be like a series of interesting STEM guests that we've had. Uh, I've mentioned Sulim and the other two would be Marianne Rue, who is an ex, an HR expert in the future of work and how to better prepare your workforce to work with robots, automation and so forth. So um, I will put the links to those other episodes below and you can make that a day of, you know, listening to us talk about how to prepare yourself and your career for the future of work. What I'm going to do after this episode is hop into my Facebook group to answer any questions that you guys may have as I have worked in and out of the um, research sector and the university sector and would be very keen to see if in the Facebook group that we have for this podcast, anybody's interested to know um, how to do that, how I would recommend that you go about um, transitioning sectors like that. So many people have had their sectors completely disrupted by the pandemic and there are other sectors that are booming. And I would say that there's a lot of government investments in R&D at the moment in boosting um, uh, every country's ability to be self-sufficient as much as possible in terms of developing their own IP technology, especially in the pharmaceutical and health area as well. So if they, if this is something that you might have an interest in, so uh, please join me um, on the Facebook group. I will put a link below in the show notes to let you know when it's happening. But if you listen to this podcast a few months later, um, the videos are kept inside the Facebook group. So it's available to members only. You have to join, but I hope that you do. That's it for now. I enjoyed this lovely chat with Nick. He is an amazing human being. Everybody that knows him really enjoys working with him. And I'm very grateful that he came on board to talk to you. Bye for now. Cool. So, is this Ooh. your new office? Work from no, home? Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I've actually, you know, uh, uh, we, we kept our house in Melbourne. We, we live in, well, we, we are in inner Melbourne in Northcote. Uh-huh. And so, um, and so uh, I've come back to, to Melbourne for a few meetings and a wedding. And um, because I've come from Canberra, which is engulfed by New South Wales, I have to self-isolate at home for two weeks. So oh, I'm five days yeah. into a 14-day lockdown. Okay. That's why I'm wearing a hat and I'm just uh, just working <laughs> working from home. And then once it's done, there's a wedding. There's a wedding, and then I go back to back to Canberra. So but you're anyway. gonna make it to the wedding? Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Well, let's see if the wedding will happen. I had a wedding postponed three times last year. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yeah, I feel so don't. I don't want to jinx it, but, you know, with Melbourne, you never know. You just never know. There was zero cases today. But I've been looking so forward to this. And, in fact, um, 
I have. So I don't know when you want to officially start, but oh, um, we've we've started already. Oh, have we? Yeah. Well, okay. I'm recording. I didn't. Okay. I just cut things that you don't want in. I just, right. you know, well, you very can... chit chatty, very cash. <laughs> yeah. So, so look, Renata, I I have listened to a few of these podcasts, and I have to admit, they're fabulous. Um, so I, yeah, they're great. So I'm a little nervous because I've heard a few of them, and um, and because they're great. Um, some of the content is just so impactful that I, I feel afraid that I might repeat some of it. But then again, I think, Don't you know, a, a good good set of, you know, information can be repeated for emphasis. So the good concepts are worth repeating. So That's I'm absolutely gonna, right. I'll people like repetition. The yeah. People like repetition and also people might just find this for the first time because it's with you. It's not always that I have a, a guest that has a Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right. Don't, don't. Have you been interviewed in other podcasts before? I, I've done a couple of other podcasts, very technical ones. Yeah. But the reason why I'm excited about this one actually is it's all about people and, yeah. um, and the, the impact of this podcast beaming across the world and growing um, is really exciting for me because, of course, behind what, what a lot of professionals like myself do is, is people and what drives them to do things is, is people at the core. So um, thank you for asking me and thank you for having me, Renata. My pleasure. I think that the funny thing about us when we worked at Monash is that we didn't have a lot to do. Like we didn't have that many meetings in it, nothing like that, because you, you have a very technical role. And I was very busy <laughs> putting out fires. Uh, yeah. frankly. Yeah. But um I had a team, as you know, and everybody in my team loved you. <laughs> That's nice to hear. And I think you know that, but yeah. it was like they would come back from catch-ups catch with you or, you know, getting to know more of the work that you were doing. And they would say, oh, Nick, he's fabulous. He's so good. He's such a... And I think you're a great leader of people. So I'm, I'm interested to hear more about that. But why don't we start about your career? I really want to know what what sort of brought you to be an expert in materials? It's yeah. just like... Look, it's, it's a really, really good question. And thank you for the compliment before. You know, it's funny to hear you say that because if I could go back knowing what we know now after a pandemic, I would have been a very different person. And I feel like a lot of us were just in a, in a corporate groove um, before the pandemic. And now we've also had a chance to, to reassess what's valuable. But Let's yeah. pick up on that a little bit later, Renata, sure. because that relates to, to how, we, how we map out, you know, a better future for everyone. But, yes, I'm an engineer, um, and the reason I studied engineering, actually, and, in fact, um, I don't want it to sound overly serendipitous, but, of course, um, the correct way to do things in life is really, you know, if you can and you have that luxury to follow the things that you're passionate about, and if you can do that, then you'll do them well, you'll enjoy yourself, uh, and then before you know it, um, what you're doing then, then becomes a career. So engineering for me was something exciting about going into the unknown. But uh, after graduating, actually, uh, I started my career in a, in a large uh, multinational consulting company, and I have to admit, I got very bored very, very quickly. And so uh, after that, um, being a sort of passionate about tech and staying at the leading edge of, of innovations, uh, I decided to go back and do a PhD where I could work on the cutting edge. Then I tried industry again after the PhD, got bored very, very quickly, I think perhaps within about six weeks. And then I jumped into academia just to stay 
at that leading edge. It wasn't so much a, a passion for education and research and teaching, but it's it's being excited about hearing new things every day and, and of course, being able to help, help create those. And so I started my academic career in the US and then uh, I returned uh, to my beloved Australia and, and I've been in higher education in Australia for the last 15 years. Um, and I guess in the context of this podcast, in those 15 years, I've spent a heck of a lot of time, probably in the last eight or nine of those years, uh, at the forefront of, of hiring talent, leadership and so forth. So I was trying to count before this particular podcast, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I've hired about 200 people um, over, over that time, which is a really, really, really yes. big number. And it was, it was a great journey to reflect on because a lot of those people have been um, either administrative staff or professional staff. And I mean, real professionals like marketing, DevOps, finance, you know, business development. So people that are at the top of their game in, in their professional activities. And then, of course, uh, everything from junior researchers to senior professors to, uh, to associate deans. So um, a lot of what we look for in people is, is quite general across the sector. So being in higher ed, I hope, uh, isn't seen as a downside for this podcast because at the end of the day, you know, people are people are people. Yeah. And, and um, I, I have a friend um, at Melbourne Uni and her job is to scout talent overseas. And up until early 2020, she spent 70% of her time away uh, looking for Australians that wanted to come back and, and foreigners that wanted to work here. It is very uh, challenging to attract uh, top talent. When I worked with you at Monash, we were hiring for um, some of the institutes and, you know, it, it's really challenging. So for you, I think it's even a step up because not only it's challenging, but because of the work you do, you're competing with the corporate sector as well. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Look, um, I think the timing of, of that concept, or I guess that point you raised is just, uh, it's, it's sizzling across every industry, like you said, so corporate research, R&D, academia, even startups. So getting talent across borders now um, is a real challenge. I think challenge is the right word. It's probably the cleanest word we could use for it at the moment. Um, and getting talent onshore, particularly in Australia, it's just not a thing at the moment, period. And it probably won't be a thing for, for about a year. I know in North America, um, there is a little bit more uh, flow of, of, of people across borders, but even so, it's, it's probably nothing like what they would need to, to feed, you know, the beasts that are things like the Silicon Valley and so forth. So it's not a thing. And it raises, I, I guess, there's a couple of ways of looking at that open question, Renata. It raises a couple of questions. One is things like, okay, well, can, can jobs be done remotely? So that's a simple approach. Another one is, if they can be, can our systems actually cope? So it, things like, um, can we pay people overseas in a different currency? Or, you know, what if they don't have a local bank account? So um, the series of questions that then follow on really expose the lack of innovation in many sectors in not having thought about this before. You know, it shouldn't have taken the pandemic. Unfortunately, it did. Um, but, but, um, what I'd like to focus on, if it's okay, I guess this is sure. your podcast, so you can you can cut me off. But what I'd like to focus on is that aspect of a double-edged sword. So clearly, I think it doesn't take um, 
much insight to, to identify all the problems that we now have with the limitation of, of people flow. But a really interesting thing now that if, if you think about is um, me working in Canberra, which is a city that um, is very difficult to get people to. It's not as compelling being the only inland city in Australia in an island of beautiful beaches, right? It's not very compelling. So can we use this as an opportunity, for example, to have expert staff members that are in San Francisco or Milan or, you know, in, in uh, the northern part of Norway, for example. So what are, what are some of the benefits that we can get? And um, it's also another, uh, another uh, opportunity for us to really focus again on the deeper why of the organisation. So, so what is it? that's important to us or, or, you know, and, and what are our core, core values and have we been in the past a little bit too narrow in how we've been hiring, so looking for experts in, in certain areas. And, and what I mean about that is if, if you're limited in the geography of who you can uh, look for, uh, you open up your, your mind um, to different narratives, different backgrounds, different trajectories, to broader experiences, which actually... Uh, fit the value sets moving into the future, perhaps equally good, if, if not better. So yeah. I'll be the first to say that um, the pandemic has, it has shone a torch on a few things that needed correction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I want to go back to the homegrown talent pool that are within our borders yep. in, in, later, but I, I really want to focus on this idea of the remote work and how it can happen in an environment like yours where it seems like everything is very tactile you know like when we think about the 3d printing yes you can ideate and you can organize um uh, you know brainstorming or or scenario planning ideas but you you would still need boots on the ground i suppose to to actually uh, <laughs> and there's maybe we're not as human beings not yet completely adaptable to it but when i was at monash in fact and and i went on a trip to um to the silicon valley for that job i visited uh one of our alumni who was working for ford at the time and they had this this place which was very very there was a dichotomy there that was really interesting they only had whiteboards everywhere everything had to be written down if you were there but they also had these massive screens that linked that stanford research center ford with other ford premises around the globe including yeah. the one here in geelong so they could zoom in and have catch-ups it was always those screens were always on and it would show like the the kitchen <laughs> it, it wasn't actually like the boardroom or a meeting room or anything formal it was like the casual meetup in Geelong with a casual meetup at Ford yeah. and people could then sit there and have a meal together and the way that these organizations worked I remember because my, my, my dad is an engineer and we worked in the Silicon Valley, but, but even back in Brazil, like you could go to work at IBM at whatever time. IBM did not have a like a like a nine to five timetable, right? And I think that maybe we might have to go back to that, which is scary for some <laughs> because, you know, if you have young children, <laughs> that's problematic. But um, that might facilitate 
that interaction across borders in the international time zones. Do you see ANU as a, like a wonderful but smaller uh, university in Australia being more nimble and open for those things? Because yeah. I, oh, I look, find I'm, that absolutely. hard. Yeah, so look, Renata, you've touched on a couple of really impo important things and I'm going to try and keep it at the level for, you know, broad broad listenership as opposed to university specific. But uh, but we, we've faced this challenge head on. And in the past year, we've hired uh, two people that are entirely based overseas with the no near-term prospect of, of coming here. And one is a, a female professor that was uh, the head of design At, at Bentley Motors in the UK. But before that, she worked uh, as the lead for the Ferrari Formula One team, the, the chief aerospace engineer. And wow. she's an Italian lady that, um, that has a totally different background to what you would expect an academic to, 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 to have. Um, and she's now based in the UK. And we've managed, after about six months, started the possibility of being able to actually re onboard someone overseas. So we had to break systems. The, the other one is, is uh, an academic that was the, uh, the technical head of JAXA, which is Japan's version of NASA. Um, uh, and he's based in Japan. And of course, we're doing this whole, uh, uh, this sort of tele-remote working thing at the moment. And I guess uh, because this is kind of in my wheelhouse, um, being an engineer, a lot of the leadership decisions I try and make are sort of uh, data-driven. And so I'm trying to work out how many of our roles um, could potentially be done remotely. And you're right, it's not 100% of them because for certain aspects of deep tech, you, you do need some boots on the ground. So if someone's task is to put together an instrument that's going to do something fabulous, you know, whether it's a new printer or some sort of process, then there's some proportion of, of our workforce that we need. We need boots on the ground. But I think that proportion is probably less than 50%. So if you look at a lot of the emerging areas, things like, um, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, digital transformations, and, and whole digital ecosystems now, we don't need the boots on the ground. Um, I don't know that we have enough experience for me to tell you what's going to work or, or what's not going to work in the long term. But you've 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 already mentioned one advantage, which I think works well. So there is this concept of digital wormholes, actually, and we we set up one back at Monash, actually in Clayton, to connect us with a corporate partner with Woodside. And what the wormhole means is you can kind of imagine this virtual tunnel kind of like a real wormhole where you can peek into a screen or something and you can see the people on the other side in, in, in spite of the time difference. So wormholes work well, but the one that actually I think, and this is a really good opportunity for software developers at the moment, the thing that doesn't work well is workshopping and virtual whiteboards and design thinking type of activities, which are pivotal To, uh, to having diverse inputs and, and team thinking and, and so forth. So there is, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention software on this, but there is one company that has quite good accessible virtual whiteboarding software and sticky notes mm -hmm. um, that, that manages to automate this task pretty well. But reenacting that physical presence uh, that you do in design thinking workshops is a bit of a challenge. And so my hope is that the systems that we're all quite used to now working remotely, um, the various yeah. bits of software evolve to that. Yeah, no, that's that's very interesting. When you mentioned the wormhole with Woodside, uh, uh, is is that little robot 
thingy, iPad thingy that you had on wheels. Is that what it was? That was, really- one, that was one of them. So you could have it through a screen, but you could also have the ability for someone to control, you know, a, a, a robot. So what we call like a double um, to go around uh, different rooms and, and do sort of a virtual visit for, for a particular person. And, um, and what's really interesting is I've seen these sort of robotics uh, actually be used um, for many humanitarian reasons since because it opened my eyes to this world where you have, um, for example, unwell children that are, that are hospital-bound for a long time and miss out on, say, fourth grade or fifth grade. How do you integrate them into a classroom? So um, technology really cuts wide and across sectors and is a real, real enabler. Mm, um, mm. But what I should say, given this is a hiring podcast, and again, Renata, always feel free to cut me off, is... Um, one thing that I think holds true is that um, individuals, when they're, when they're looking for work, um, if they have challenges with, with moving and relocating and all that stuff now or, or flexible timing or want to work remotely, um, I encourage everyone to just put that out there and ask that question because my experience um, since the pandemic started is anyone uh, that we've thought is suitable for a role and has wanted uh, to work flexibly, um, we've always made it possible. So it's it's an option now, um, yeah. and it's one that that I encourage everyone to uh, to just ask the question. How do you then onboard somebody like that? What oh. what what is the, <laughs> with the ex- protocol? With, with extreme difficulty, Renata. Really? So so um, it's it's a work in progress. So uh, we try and document what it is that we're doing and. Um, the very first thing we tell the person we're remote, uh, onboarding remotely is that they're part of an experiment and we're looking for feedback at every step to make it easier for the next person. It's, it's very far from perfect, but uh, it, what it does is it brings everyone to the humane level to, to, to begin with because I don't think anyone either side knows what a remote boarding, uh, onboarding process looks like at the moment. Oh, wow. Um, I am thinking of somebody we both know, John Whittle, who is now at Data61. And he last year posted on on LinkedIn that he had been at Data61 and hadn't met anybody, hadn't realized how tall people were and how short people (laughs) when he finally made it to the office. Oh, that's really funny. That is really, really funny. And um, I guess, have you also considered... I mean, we have our borders, uh, international borders close until middle of next year. But are you considering eventually putting together some sort of uh, sort of group experience? Because I know there's a guy on Twitter who is sort of advocating for these um, uh, sort of remote work opportunities to then be paired up with, okay, let's all get together in a wonderful location <laughs> and have a really interactive week together. And that would sort of suffice for maybe, you know, half a year until you have another one. Is that sort of in your mind as well? Look, um, absolutely. I don't know whether or not that will be the, the fix all because it's, uh, it's all an experiment, but it will be really, really useful. So as soon as borders open, we are hoping to, to get acquainted in a physical sense with, with staff that we've, we've onboarded remotely. Um, on the flip side, we're also hoping to engage with our, with our partners as well overseas. So large organisations like universities have a lot of partners, you know, in, in, in various countries. Um, we internationalised our, our, not just our student base, but of course our research base, our revenue base, uh, our stakeholder base. And um, whilst we'd all like to think that, okay, 
post-COVID, um, we're all going to evolve into these superior beings that don't necessarily need to travel. I think we have a learning journey in the near term that we all need to work through where we don't just uh, fully replace you know, personal ways of working, but but uh, evolve towards being able to supplement them in the most effective way. Mm. So it won't be easy, um, but it's it's a really, really interesting time. And like I said, I'm trying to look at, at be optimistic um, and look at what we can learn and what positives we can take from, from this particular shakeup. Yeah. So I have recently delivered an executive presence uh, masterclass for a headhunting firm and for uh, a female sort of community of international business women. It's quite interesting what they do because I was contacted earlier this year uh, from this uh, executive search firm team saying, look, we love our candidates. We've worked really well with them up until now. Now we've noticed that they're not presenting that well on screen. <laughs> you know, they were very good face-to-face. -face. Their executive yeah. presence and the way that they interacted uh, with employers was, was perfect. Yeah they're just not sort of feeling at ease in the sort of two-dimensional screens. How do you, how do you it's find... It's a real challenge. Oh, is geez. it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I mean, um, it takes a, it, it's a real art to connect on the two-dimensional screen. I can see you now and you do it tremendously well. But, um, but basically, uh, the, the lack, of, lack of context that you see around someone... Um, means that, you know, you can have biased views of, of how others are presenting without knowing the full picture. So one, one thing that, uh, that always strikes me is people that have two screens will have, this is something quite trivial, right? But, uh, but I say, I give it as a, as a powerful example. So someone that has two screens is likely looking at the screen in which they can see the people, which is maybe different to the screen that has the camera on it. And yes. so it's very easy to think, well, geez, they're not paying attention or they're reading off a screen, you know, they're reading <laughs> a script. How, how could they be doing that? That's a, that's a point. So, so, so there's this total lack of context, I guess. It, it needs a balance. I think we need to be kind to those that we're talking and it's a real skill yeah. to be able to read the room when you're presenting in, in mm. Zoom. And, and it's a skill that doesn't come quickly. Um, so I encourage all the listeners to just chip away at it um, every now and then um, while you're, you know, doing something off camera, look at the other people and see what, what cues you can get. In fact, humans uh, are the ultimate, you know, uh, machine learning computer, right? So yeah. even with minimal cues, you'll be able to pick up what others are doing, but like anything, it takes practice. You know, it's like riding a bike, but yeah, it is difficult to present through zoom. Um, yeah. For those, I really feel for those that are doing job interviews through Zoom. When I mean I feel for yeah. you, I, I mean that in 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 every context. Of course, it's a difficult time, and I know that that this has impacted a lot on people's career and their work and and yeah. mental stress. Um, and doing it by Zoom is just a, an extra layer. So, whoever is interviewing through Zoom, a special shout out to all of you because. Um, you all deserve a pat on the back. You're right. Now, Nick, you have been hiring since the beginning of the pandemic. Yep. What has what have been the best practices that you have found to find talent? Because in a way, yep. because of remote work and the fact that you can hire somebody based in the UK to work for you mm. now, you kind of yep. opened up yep. uh, the spectrum of, of people. But well, in academia, you could always hire people from overseas and bring them anyway. Yep. But, but what have you done to attract people to work in Canberra. 
Yeah, <laughs> I love Canberra, by the way. My husband and I, we actually go to Canberra for holidays almost oh, every yeah. year. Look, it, we it is, love it Canberra. Lovely. Yeah, but look, don't <laughs> tell too many people. It's beauty is that it's a best kept secret. But look, um, it really is on that flip side. So, so on the international side, we still do international searches. We still uh, use search firms, executive search firms. We still have, you know, uh, the train on the tracks in the conventional way. But mm -hmm. it has put us more in tune with what's going on locally, the opportunities locally, because the pandemic has genuinely let us reassess our values. So the industry, um, the, the whole sector, higher education in Australia, its, it's largest revenue base is, is student tuition. So I'll rip the bandaid off, which means international student revenue has plummeted. And so the sector has had a little bit of a shake-up and, and, uh, and a correction. And that correction, I call it a correction because it means that rather than just looking for, for revenue, which is, you know, which, which one could have justified as a, as a sound business decision prior to that pandemic, we're not just looking for revenue or replacing revenue. Now, it's actually a chance to think about, well, what are we actually contributing in terms of impact to the world, impact to our communities, how we... Uh, helping things like accelerating reconciliation, how are we helping disabled Australians, regional Australians and so forth. So from that point of view, um, we are looking much, much more broadly. We are deliberately not closing searches unless we have diversity of backgrounds, intersectional diversity, so the sort of pool of people that would look like if you walk down Burke Street Mall, which is usually very different to the sort of pool of people you'd get if you were just looking for, a, you know, a professor of structural mechanics or something like that. <laughs> yeah. So we are starting to do things differently, and I'll be the first to admit that it's, uh, that it's important to do, and it's something that is long overdue in this sector and, and in many sectors. But the good news is, and I can certainly say that on behalf of my institution and I know many others that are coming through the other side, is you see... Um, refreshed strategic intents and strategic goals for universities. And uh, our one at the ANU was released uh, two days ago by our VC. And you can see it's very much human-centred. Um, and, uh, and, and that really reflects the sort of core values. Um, of course, I would be uh, lying to you if I didn't say we're all heading into a bit of the unknown as we, as we move forward in, into, uh, into, I guess, the new post post-pandemic world uh, and it's important to recognize that we're going into the unknown and uh, humans are going to be a big part of, of dealing with that because it's no single individual that can make a decision that's a good decision for predicting the future the more voices we have in in predicting and creating the future the better yeah nick i i want to go back to that idea of the uh domestic talent pool Right. So this has been something that has bothered me for a long time <laughs> since I moved to Australia, in fact, and was deciding where the kids would go to school and what sort of subjects they were doing in high school. And the fact that they could opt out of um, STEM subjects completely just scared the bejesus out of me. That didn't happen to my boys. But I, I you know, I, I was really surprised to see that uh, as an option. Uh, then when I was at the John Monash Foundation, I remember back in 2015, Grattan Institute released a report, and I love Grattan Institute, often love their reports. I'm fully backing them on the, the, the fight that they have at the moment with um, the migration policies and all of that. But back then, 
the premise was that we actually didn't need that many STEM students <laughs> and STEM graduates because we, we were not hiring them. The, the employees didn't need to have a need for them. And I was flabbergasted with that. And I ghost wrote uh, an article which was then published under the name of my my chairman at the time, because she's a bigger, you know, more well-known person than I was on The Guardian. And, and she went on 7.30 report and all of that, 7.30 um, on ABC to say, we, we need people with STEM um, skills, even if they're going to be a senior executives and work in the corporate sector, if they're going to work in NGOs, they don't have to be academics. They don't have to be at the um, uh, top end of um, R&D revolution. They just need to exist in the workplace. Uh, we need to have more of that. I think things have changed, but I think it takes gener- a generation of, or two for us to get to where we need to be in Australia to have more of our kids and young professionals interested in industry 4.0, interested in materials, interested in um, either being there doing it with you and your team or making executive decisions that are important for the future of Australia as it embraces technology. So when I started working as a consultant, I left Monash and I started working as a consultant, we would... I would get calls because people knew I was available and say, oh, Renata, you're available. Can you come in? And, you know, we have all this duplication of work in our business, really large organization, lots of different departments doing the same thing. And I was like, okay, I'd I'd love to. They would say, it's a cultural problem. Can you come in? Because it's a cultural problem. And I'm like, yes, I'll come in. Do you mind if I bring Tiago with me just so that he can have a little look at the technology behind this as well. And they would say, oh, no, no need. It's definitely a cultural problem when in fact it was not. It was something that, you know, if you had somebody like this uh, consultant that worked with me, that worked with, you know, bots and automation and all of that, it would just make the culture of the place better because the systems were in place to support people, right? We don't, it seems like it's, it was complete gibberish for these executives. It was not part of their thinking process and the decision-making to incorporate technology to make life easier for their employers. Do you, am I sort of, do you know where I'm going here? I, I know where you're going. You've, you've hit a few key topics uh, and you, you've, you've said a lot of really important words. So, you know, STEM, you've said systems, you've said culture, you've, you basically you've touched on on a big picture of, of, of digital transformation and whether or not executives are understand it or are ready for it. So, I mean, that would be another uh, series of a, of a few podcasts um, <laughs> that would be really, really, really interesting. But, but no doubt um, we are – I'll try and tackle some of the topics in a bit of a narrative, but you, you raised a few really important topics. Of course, does the world need – more folks in STEM, and and of course, I would I would advocate yes, but but my definition of STEM is less about exactly what you study and more about the sort of domain impact of what you do. So that's I'm going to use your word a system, Renata. So when you think of a technological system, even something like well, not something like, but something as profound as a as a smartphone, um, it's interacting with elderly citizens that rely on it for things like um, 
trust and autonomy for doing banking and medical appointments, right through to someone playing arcade games, right through to the those that are having input, like the app developers. And there's so many digital transactions that happen across this this system um, that that don't actually need any physical stores or any physical presence whatsoever. So really, you know, the sort of digital era is is here. Even if you think about something like music, you know, you don't actually go in and buy at a record store things anymore. Although records are really cool, uh, or CDs, but you get your MP3s perhaps either through a streaming service like Spotify or or through the you know the the iTunes store. So things have changed dramatically, and and uh, nearly everything now is a system, and across that system, you need uh, people working in technological systems. There could be anthropologists, historians, geographers, and so forth, but they're tethered in a in a in a STEM system. So I think, you know, it's important that that um, we continue to to train people in in tech in aspects of technology that matter much more broadly. Now, I do have some good news, although uh, it's going to take a little while to see it, but I can assure you, I, one of the benefits I have in my, in my job in higher education is I get to interact with the youthful enthusiasm of, of students. Um, and uh, the uh, Generation Z students that are, um, I guess, between 6 and 24 years old at the moment, yeah. Um, what they can do from a technological point of view is amazing. We're yet to see it in the workforce just yet. But if I wanted a new app, you know, for for your business, Renata, mm-hmm. I have the choice of going to a firm. We're going to pay a lot of money and you're going to have uh, people that are 30, 40, 50, 60 years old working on that app and so forth. Um, if I wanted to do it right now, I would ask an undergraduate student that's working in computer science or engineering or IT or even anthropology, right, to get together and what they would be able to pull off, their ability to code, to think about user experience and so forth is remarkable. So we're going to see some beautiful things um, in this country and in most countries as uh, the youth uh, that's going through the system at the moment starts to really penetrate our workforce. So I'm super optimistic for our future. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that you touched on a, a great um, thing there of the blend between um, the science and arts students and, and how important it is to bring them together to discuss ethics, to discuss um, user experience and, and all of the important things that make machines um, much better for us. Do you also think that with the border closures, there will be more of an... Um, an appetite for employers to develop talent, to hire talent for potential and bring them on board with the purpose of getting them ready um, as part of the onboarding? Do you, have you seen that happen yet? Yeah, look, I mean, th- there is a whole range of activities that are local to Australia. And I guess I was hesitant to try and focus so much on Australia, even though we're in Australia, because I know that you have listeners all around the world. But um one of the things that's going on in Australia at the moment, which, and I'm loath to use this word, is investing in talent because of a thing that we're calling Australian sovereignty, right? So, I mean, the, the world has gone astray. How do we uh, invest in a, in a local future? And now I'm just using other people's words there. The way I would like to think about that investment is, is 
enabling Australians to have a broader impact on the whole world, not so much enabling Australians so that we can yeah. just double down on what's going on with, within our borders. So syntax aside, um, I do see a lot of that at the moment where uh, there is investment in specific people um, on the job training um, and uh, who knows, I think maybe the future of some of the professions that we've normally seen uh, through a university training and then joining a company might actually start to flip on their head where someone out of high school or from any background joins a company and then the company plays a proactive role in their training and their qualification in role. Um, mm -hmm. The universities have been really slow in being able to, to, to do that. And so, of course, universities also need to involve like the rest of the world and, and um, have innovative education Mm -hmm. products that can be potentially even non-degree bearing uh, or, or, you know, uh, programs that are, that are job ready type training as well. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot that can happen there. And I guess that's a watch this space. And of course we see competitors in higher education all the time. So things like Coursera or edX or even um, a whole range of North American and European universities doing things online at the moment. Yeah. Um, and it's great to see. It's great yeah. to say. One of the things that I help clients with is with the sector transition, right? So people that have spent a lot of time in large organizations, large corporations now applying uh, for jobs in startups, you know, and the startup seed, there, there are two ways that they're perceived. Either, either they, the startup think, well, you don't have the skills. There's just no way. Or the startup thinks, well, I, can't, I really want to bring you on board. I need that intelligence and that experience that you will bring so that we can do IPOs, that we can, you know, sort of scale and grow and you have that marketing or international experience that we need. Um, how I see you as a hybrid professional. You call yourself an academic, but you're always working with large corporations, right? So you, you're in this sort of hybrid between taking whatever university does outside to the outside world for implementation. And you said it yourself that you also hire people that are not just academics, they're professionals uh, working for, for the implementation of, of R&D. What are some of the qualities that you're looking for professionals that want to work in the environment such as yours? Yeah, oh, gee, what a what a great question, Renata. That's that's a real important question, and I guess, um, you know, the way I want to interpret that question, given that this is you know a, a podcast on hiring and so forth, is really to give you an honest answer of of something that I think can potentially maybe even help some of the listeners. But um, there has been. A long tradition, I guess, and I've seen it. This is this is my data, right? My my data says there's been a long tradition of people um, entering either job interviews or entering the room and telling you a lot about what they've done in the past and and focusing on what they've done and uh, and trying to build confidence in the future based on what they've done in the past. Now, what what someone has done in the past is. Um, is, is certainly, it's worth mentioning what you've done in the past, whether it's specific to the role or not, it's still worth mentioning, I guess, because it brings trust to the table. But really, um, if there's one bit of advice that I could give anyone uh, is to be 
are open about what they actually want to do in the future, right? So when, when I'm hiring people or when our organization is hiring people, um, and I have some uh, dabbles in startups, let's leave that for another time, but I'm currently uh, a CTO in a, in a startup here in, in Melbourne, which is fabulous. But basically, the key is, is what is someone going to do in the future or what do they want to do? So the narrative should be about, about future tense because um, that's what's going to happen day one of work or week one or, or year one and so forth. So what, what I would like to convey is to encourage everyone to be very confident in their abilities and actually be open about what it is that you want to do in the job mm-hmm. because um, if you're open about it and you get the job, then it's win-win for everyone. Uh, if you're not open about what you want to do, but you get the job, but you find it it's not really what you wanted, then I guess it's kind of a, a lose-lose for everyone. So be confident in, in your abilities and talk about what it is that you want to do in the future. And of course, I say that knowing that I'm going to sound like a bit of a, a, a jackass because I, I know, and I shouldn't swear on this, but I, but I know that, that it's a difficult time on the job market at the moment. So basically what I'm saying is, is talk about what you want to do. And if no one's aligned to your dream, then don't take that job. Now, that's not what I mean. I know it's challenging at the moment. So I encourage everyone, of course, to, of course, be very, very kind to yourself. But if you are able to, uh, to, to be in the position where you can be open about what it is that you want to do and that aligns with the company, then that's really, really good. Um, and, of course, the other thing that you raised, and I'm going back to the beginning of your topic there where you were talking about startups and startup mentality and challenges is that I think here in Australia, perhaps much more so than any other um, Western or perhaps even non-Western nation as well, um, there is a little bit of a stigma attached to senior executives stepping into a startup as well, where you wouldn't bat an eyelid if a senior executive in the US from a Fortune 500 company went to Silicon Valley and was the CEO of a startup that only had four people because you know that that has the opportunity to become a unicorn. Of course, that stigma in Australia about status and and size of startup and and so forth is one that we can hopefully shake really, really quickly because the the way out of, of, of not just the pandemic but the way out of many quality of life issues that, that we all face at the moment is by uh, empowering and, in, and investing in startups and letting them get on with, with the good work that they need to do. Yes. I'd like to say something here that I said to a client earlier this week because it was exactly, exactly what you're saying. The client, the, the stigma was in his mind, you know. He was saying, oh, that's it then. You know, if I take up the startup job, then I'll never be able to go back into the big sort of organizations that I had before. And I'm like, that's, you have to talk, you're going to meet the board next week, right? You have to ask the board what their plans are for this startup. They might want to sell, they might want to merge, they might want to list, they, you know, you need to find out in which stage they are in their thinking about the the future for this organization. It could be that you might be incorporated into a very large organization very soon. You don't even, you haven't even considered that. But, and he really didn't. And as soon as I started talking about the different scenarios of what can happen to a startup, and yes, it can fail too. Let's not, you know, beat around the bush. They, they could, they could, 
definitely be the 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 technology that doesn't survive in a sea of um, rising technologies in the space that he was uh, applying for. But it's still a great opportunity, regardless. Um, and and I think we may not see that in right now in twenty twenty one. But let's say it fails in two years' time. Things change really fast in two years' time. And I think by then he will be okay with the fact that he had this stint in a startup. Do you, am I right? I think absolutely. that I'm, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Life is certainly a journey. And, uh, and I agree entirely there. Mm, I, I think, you know, if you have the opportunity. Um, and also the other thing that often um, makes uh, senior execs uh, uncomfortable about taking a startup job is that it may not pay as well having said that because the demand for great talent is so big right now in australia because our borders are closed startups are actually paying more than they have ever before i can see that for my clients that are taking up jobs in startups but you can always negotiate so that i mean it's part of the the, the salary negotiation with startups you know some ownership and bonuses and and so the, the the salary negotiation is is very different. Um, c- can I ask you? I'm going to go into a different direction now, with your permission here, because I want um, executives that are working in different sectors: agriculture, engineering, construction. Oh gosh, telecommunications. To start thinking about those technologies that are coming up, that you are coming up with. <laughs> just before we we began i had to google this is how it will sound really stupid i might have to delete this from the the episode but i have to tell you i was googling is magnesium a metal <laughs> <laughs> i was like oh my god i take a scoop of magnesium every afternoon i didn't even know it was a metal <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a vital one and it's good that you're having it, it it's good for you <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Yeah. So I want you to tell us what's going to come next. So a, f- a year ago, exactly, almost, I interviewed Catherine Ball, mm-hmm. and I interview is a big word. He, she basically took over the mic for sixty minutes and spoke. Oh wow! Stop. <laughs> I didn't have to do a thing. Yeah, <laughs> she's know. a tour de force, and you know, you know, I I hired her about that time, and Did she's you? she's she's a remote employee of the yes. ANU. And so that's another example. She's not overseas, but she's not Canberra-based. And yeah. we're making it work. It's a learning journey. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, she's, she's talkative. She's like me. She's worse than me. She can talk underwater for sure. <laughs> um, but I think it's probably a great idea to have an update from you on what we can expect um, soon so of course her area of expertise is more drones i'd love to hear from you about 3d printing but also machine learning ai anything that we could yeah. be looking yeah. forward to oh look there is a, a heck of a lot to be optimistic about um i i'm low to, to lean back on an example uh from the anu but of course one of the cool things that's happening at the anu is we have a a new school a school of cybernetics that's working on bringing AI largely to, 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 to scale, right? And that's led by um, a distinguished professor, Genevieve Bell, that was the vice president of Intel. She's a fabulous anthropologist. And that's focusing on, on uh, ethical 
aspects of AI, so having humans in loop and so forth. So the reason why I wanted to say that is it's almost like a disclaimer because I don't want to talk about the wonders that AI will bring and for folks to not think that behind that um, it's going to be impacting humans and it's important to have that ethics um, and built in. And, and you were talking about that before. So with that disclaimer, wow, um, the future looks really, really beautiful. <laughs> um, I guess um, I'm not going to separate things like 3D printing um, and machine learning and AI and drones because actually what the future is, is it's really a highly interconnected um, streams of data. And those highly interconnected streams of data um, will lead to the ability to have um, advanced decision-making happening in an automated manner, which is, which is what AI is. Um, it's currently not something that, that we see because um, part of the challenge that we have at the moment where we're sort of going from the old world, and what I mean by the old world is the history of time up until a few years ago um, and into the new world, where you will uh, reap the benefits of artificial intelligence, whether it's in route planning for your cycle home, whether it's in the sort of health advice that your doctor gives you and so forth. Where we are at the moment is this kind of an awkward period where um, the data we need to make appropriate uh, AI-based decisions um, either is being generated or being trawled or being scraped or wasn't in a usable form. So when I said before I'm an engineer, um, I specialize in materials and the development of alloys. And of course, now we make these materials by advanced manufacturing. But if you go looking in history over the last hundred years, um, you have to scrape information out of libraries to finally get a list of all the alloys. I'll just use magnesium as an example. Magnesium alloys that have been made in the history of time. You can probably make a list of about a thousand of them. Some of them, you know, won't have recorded all the information that goes into their ingredients and their cooking recipe, and they won't have the various properties. So you've got small and disparate data sources that are not very useful at the moment. So as we're going from old school to AI, we have these teething problems of trying to train the computers on, on disparate bits of, of information. And we're slowly working on, when I say we, the whole world is working on algorithms to deal with small and disparate data sources, uh, algorithms to improve that transition into where we can actually start to really get into autonomous decision-making. And of course, it needs to be ethical autonomous decision-making. We can start to see major improvements in what it is that we're doing. So um, the magnesium alloys that we make and we try and 3D print um, we will hopefully in a few years' time have a computer tell us what exact recipe we should be using. And, of course, when I say that, it's not just to improve properties. There's a whole range of things. So if the computer uh, is connected to a data source from all the local garbage tips in Australia, on any given day, it can assess the amount of materials in the waste stream and use those as the input for decision-making for the exact composition that we should make based on today's waste stream to get the properties that we need to achieve. So you can see data leads to decisions. They can impact things like circularity. They can start to minimise the damage on the planet, reduce CO2, and everything starts to really come, come together nicely. So 
I don't think we're too far away from being able to do that sort of stuff. And a good example where you can see that uh, already is in smart systems that, uh, um, that use uh, autonomous uh, driving, for example. So anyone that's fortunate enough to have a Tesla um, knows exactly what the future is going to look like. Have you ever seen a movie called Brazil? No. Oh, you have to find it. It's from the 80s and it's, um, it's very iconic. And once you watch it, it's not that well known, but once you watch it, then you can see all the references of more modern movies about this sort of Kafkaian dystopian future where your food would be 3D printed in a machine and you would eat that sort of 3D printed food. And it's, quite, it's called Brazil because it's a, a future that's also very bureaucratic <laughs> and, and things just start going wrong because of data being input, like being being sort of wrongly put into systems and yeah, people yeah. getting into trouble. Oh, well, look, uh, thank you. Basically what you've done is you've reinforced my very, very first point, which I thought was absolutely critical to deal with. You don't want to let the robots create havoc. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I guess, you know, um, that that's kind of, I always think about that movie and I shouldn't, but I also think that um, with the pandemic, I remember when I first met Catherine, for example, and she used to say, oh, everybody's going to have a drone. And I'm like, oh, nah. Now I'm like, I really think I need a drone. Like, I, I think everybody should have a drone to pick up something or, you know what I mean? Like there's this change in everybody's mind about what it means to have your, your home office and maybe having a 3G printer right next to me to print myself whatever I need. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I, certainly <laughs> I, 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 I have both. We're not at the point where we can get the drone to go and collect a latte from the coffee shop, but I'm hoping that that will change at some point, uh, at some point soon. Yeah. Um, and you can see that that touches on a whole range of different legislative issues. So, you know, what height, what airspace, what this, what that. So, um, mm -hmm. so it's going to be a busy future, but I am extremely optimistic that it's going to be a, a, a great future. Nick, this has been such a great chat. I think we're reaching our one hour mark, but do you have any final thoughts? Is there anything that you've wanted to share that we haven't had the opportunity today? Happy for you to say your final words now before we go. Uh, look, not terribly much. I just want to always remind people to, um, to you know, be confident in their abilities when they're in the, in the job hunt. Um, ask a lot of people for advice. Um, be yourself be open about what you want to do in the future um, and, and always just be, be, be kind to yourself. Um, I know it's a difficult time and these words sort of bounce off, particularly those that have, that have had uh, a difficult journey in the past 18 months. Um, to those people, um, I'm sending you good vibes um, and good blessings. And uh, thank you, Renata, for having me. It's been a real pleasure. No, thank you. Thanks so much for taking the time. Excellent.